Hello, it's your host, Sydney Gardner-Brown, and you're listening to The Sit-Down, a series of unfiltered, organic, recorded conversations featuring the voices of college students, usually my friends. Our conversations are focused on capturing a wide array of perspectives regarding race, pop culture, politics, gender, sexuality, well-being, and so much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. On today's episode of The Sit Down, we're talking about how everyone, including you and including me, are sometimes held hostage. Well, hostage might not be the right way to say it. It's more so like we are bound to the biases that we developed over time that were instilled in us by our parents, our communities, our schools, our churches, um, and the places from which we come. And sometimes those beliefs are helpful. They help us with making good decisions and they help us uh, develop good skills and discernment. Um, But oftentimes, unfortunately, by applying what we think we know about the world based on our very limited perspectives developed in the bubbles from which we are raised, we create roadblocks. Roadblocks for understanding, roadblocks for dialogue across difference. We apply prejudices to people we don't even know. Now, get, don't get me wrong. I'm not at all justifying ignorance. I'm not justifying hateful rhetoric. I'm not justifying hateful beliefs. Don't, don't, get, don't get the purpose of this episode wrong. What I'm justifying today is the necessity for context, the necessity to go beyond what you think you know about people and understand for once, the context behind the things that they're saying, the things that you don't agree with. No matter where you're from and no matter how much you think you know, there is always more to be learned if you just listen instead of speak. If you're like me, that can be a little difficult sometimes. I can be kind of argumentative and debative and I I hold strong in my beliefs, but the first step I'll say is acknowledging that we all have growing to do. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with a college friend of mine, Benjamin Gerstein, a retired student body president of the University of Michigan and a lover of all things sports. (laughs) He puts people like me to shame. Uh, Today, he and I will explore the necessity to engage across differences, and he'll talk to you and uh, and me uh, about how despite being raised in something of a religious ideological bubble, he has made the sort of intellectual journey toward open-minded thinking and inclusivity. Remember, we're not experts, we're just undergraduates, (laughs) but we're doing our best. Benjamin Gerstein, how are you doing? How's your day going? How was your day today? It's going well. Chicago Bears win today, and so that's always a good Sunday for me. Mm-hmm. The Chicago Bears are a what? A hockey team? National Football League team. Oh, wait. Um, the Chicago Bears are a football team? Yes. Oh, my God. That's so embarrassing. I did not know that. <laughs> they are rivals with the Detroit Lions in all honesty really? as well. I thought that the... I think... Oh, wait. Historically, oh, weren't the Bulls the... the Bulls are basketball. Oh my god. Oh. No, you're fine. 
wait, 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 wait. The Bulls are are rivals with the Pistons. Yeah. Okay. Oh no, you're frozen. <laughs> it froze. Okay, okay, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, you're back. You're back. You're back. Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I wasn't tripping. So it's just Chicago. Chicago teams are rivals with Detroit teams. Um. Yes, I would say actually across all sports. Yeah. Yep. In all sports, Chicago teams versus Detroit teams. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Okay. I did not know that. I knew. Only reason I knew the thing about the Pistons was because. I watched this show called New Girl, and there was an episode about that. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So, I asked you to come onto the podcast today, onto the sit down, because um, I think you have a really interesting story to tell. Um, I think that we have these conversations all the time in our what I like to call our ivory, our special little ivory tower, our blue, blue maize and blue ivory tower. Um, about having conversations across difference um, and opening the door to like facilitating dialogue across difference. But um, too often we still find ways to compartmentalize ourselves and, and stay, you know, what is a word for segregated, honestly, in a lot of ways. Siloed too, sort of like siloed in our own. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the information and all the opinions we take in are in line with ours. Right. Right. When that doesn't happen, panic a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think that's normal and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that's the human reality. It's a defensive reaction. Right, right, Um, right. Sometimes a very valid defensive reaction, especially when we have conversations on issues that maybe for someone in a conversation aren't life and death, but for someone is and so it can be really harmful to hear certain things right um, and so it's complicated if i came here as a freshman i probably wouldn't end up where i currently am mm-hmm. so to me it's always interesting to see and to check myself right you know, i'm not going to be generous with someone or give them the benefit of the doubt right because um, i'm very thankful that that was done for me right um, and so that's definitely a helpful perspective in like that exact kind of situation. Cause I, I mean, it was silly, but it, I mean, it really shows like we do separate ourselves very easily. And it, and it shows how our minds like when we do that because it satisfies an urge mm-hmm. to make things easier. Right, right. And, you know, it's very easy to look at a group and say, I disagree with them. And so yep. I'm going to generalize. Yep, exactly. Um, and you... it's, it's comfortable for us. And that's, if we get into social media at all, why I hate social media, um, even though I'm still on it. But um, what really does freak me out about it and how I've seen it really impact people. Um, So. Yeah, no, I mean, you really hit on a really good point, though, that had you not had someone who was bringing these things up with you and having these conversations with you as a freshman, um, Mm -hmm. or even just, maybe not even just as a freshman, just in general, you might not have had the opportunity to uh, change your perspective on the way that the world works, even though you were surrounded, even though we are living. So we're getting into the point now where um, we're just going to get right into it. You grew up in a household that was Jewish. So that's something. So you grew up in a household that was Jewish that was also conservative. So that's, we've talked about how unique that is. I wouldn't say necessarily my household was conservative. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Um, I would, I can describe it. Okay. Um, I have parents... Um, who I would say both aren't really 
you know, as political as I am, I would say sort of that's my defining interest. Okay. Um, they would, my mom ha- is a lifelong Democrat. My mom's always voted Democrat. Oh, okay. Uh, as is my younger brother. My okay. My father is the kind of voter um, who votes for candidates, not parties. He's always been that way. Okay, um, okay. But the news source that my family consumed, I would say, potentially without realizing um, what we were consuming was Fox News, pretty much purely in my house. Okay. Uh, and so I would say by nature of that, you know, I grew up in a house that didn't like President Obama. Okay, um, okay. Um, I wouldn't say more broadly, I wouldn't say it was personal. I wouldn't say, you know, I lived in a family that gave gave into birtherism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily believe this is possible now, um, but I'd like to, like, qualify my house as fiscally conservative, socially liberal, even, think okay. I, even though I have the realization now that that's a contradiction right. in and of itself. Right. That's how I used to define myself, and mm-hmm. I'd say that's at least how members of my family would define themselves. Okay. Not necessarily my parents. You know, and we hear that all the time. That's not That's yeah. not even, like, people yeah. say that kind of thing no Trump, all the time. No Trump supporters in the family, um, in the immediate family, um, but definitely in my extended family. But I'm very lucky that I don't think if it weren't for both the values that my parents personally gave me okay, uh, and the Jewish values that I grew up with. I went to a Jewish school mm-hmm. until high school, and so that was a big part of my education. Right. Um, I said, without those two things, you know, the gift of my parents' values and them bestowing upon me that Jewish education, um, I probably would have been way easier locked in to how I used to think. Right. Uh, and so they really did help give me, and they didn't resist my change perspective too because of, you know, the person who I am and what I believe now these last three years. Mm-hmm. My parents love when I come home just to ask questions because mm-hmm. their worldview has shifted massively. And so that's been really cool. Um, to sort of start that process at age 18 mm-hmm. um, and then to bring two individuals in their late 40s um, who unconsciously and consciously shaped how I view the world, um, help show them some of the things that I'm figuring out and undoing in things I was socialized to think or learn from the news that I watched growing up um, or the way in which things were taught in the institutions I operated in. Right, absolutely. Um, and so, and we can get into a little bit of like some, my academic decisions played a big role in me sort of shedding a lot of those assumptions that I grew up with and right. helped form my perspective. Right, so you, so you, you, so your household has been like, to, it's totally traditionally Jewish, like you're celebrating Yom Kippur. That starts tomorrow? So it actually started at sundown tonight. Okay, it starts um, at sundown so tonight. Okay. I did, you know, services are virtual now and can't usually gather in synagogue, but the right. fast, eat a big meal before sundown tonight. Okay. Um, there's a service called Kol Nidre tonight, which is the beginning of um, the holiday of atonement, which I can get into in a little bit. That's sort of the essence of Yom Kippur. Okay. Um, and then services all day tomorrow, starting in the morning until sundown mm-hmm. when the fast ends and the holiday ends. Okay, and, and that's... So that's in, you said that's sun, that's next Sunday or that's? No, that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow at sundown. Oh, so, so it's only one day. day. Yeah. It's I don't know why I thought you said. Um, from all okay, 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 holidays okay. go from sundown to sundown. Okay. 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 So I don't know why I thought it was a week long. The observance of the holiday um, begins when the sun sets and ends when the sun sets. Okay. I understand now. I understand. Okay. Okay. Is there like some sort of historical significance to that? I'm sure there is. Yeah, so this is what's known as the holiest day, the holiest Jewish holiday. It's the second of the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, mm-hmm. um, which was 10 days ago. Um, 
begins the new year, so it's the Jewish New Year on the Hebrew calendar. Um, and then Yom Kippur uh, is the Day of Atonement. So in the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, um, there are a series of rituals and ceremonies that I personally, I'd consider myself a conservative Jew, mm-hmm. not an Orthodox one, um, mm-hmm. but also not Reform. And so, you know, the synagogue I go to is a little more observant and traditional. And my okay. family, you, I grew up doing Shabbat on Friday nights and so on. Um, and so we practice the, um, the holidays probably more frequently and a little more religiously, but not to the full extent. Okay. And okay. so in these 10 days, you know, I'm not doing the entirety of the rituals and ceremonies that mm-hmm. are outlined that should be partaken in. Um, but my main observance begins tonight. I did a brief service. My synagogue is live streaming it. Okay. Um, you're not supposed to be using technology on this holiday, so it's new for everybody. Right. That the only way to engage with it is through technology. Right. Um, and okay. then tomorrow... I'll wake up, do services in the morning, spend the day, you know, you're fasting. And so spend a lot of time outside sitting and relaxing and reading right. and whatnot, and then have a service before dinner. How, how um, do you, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I mean, unless you want to, I don't, I don't want to necessarily make you feel like you had to <laughs> explain your entire religion to me. Um, <laughs> But now I'm actually curious, how do you normally go about, like, are there accommodations that are made from the university? Like, you can't, for example, you have, we have an exam on Tuesday. Um, yeah. Do you, so, like, how does that work for you? So it's usually worked well for me, but I can't say that's been the story for everyone. Right. Um, the university has an outline policy that I just know from my experience on campus that they email with faculty and make very clear. Um, and when I was student body president last year, um, I remember talking about that a little bit just to check in on the process because mm-hmm. um, there was a big exam in Ross scheduled on Rosh Hashanah, right. um, and that was a problem for a lot of students that there were complaints about. Um, and so I'd say, at least in my personal experience, I've fared well with accommodations. Okay. I know the school has a policy that recommends professors don't penalize and whatnot on that day. Right. Um, but I know from other students that there's definitely been problems with it. Um, but I know that usually once it's been communicated, I would say that professors are fairly, uh, very understanding. Right. And I mean, and I, I figured that they were pretty understanding just considering just how vast the, the, uh, the Jewish population is at our university. Like are, as soon yeah, as I asked that question, I was like, I know that they're accommodating because believe, a lot of yeah, students are Jewish. I, I believe in terms of our undergrad undergraduate population, we're almost 15 to 17% Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a number that high, mm-hmm. um, which as I, if I'm not mistaken, 0.02% of the country maybe mm-hmm. um, is pretty unbelievable. I'm not exactly sure what that percentage is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are lots. I mean, I, I worked at Camp Michigania a couple summers ago. And even though it's like we go to the we go to a public university that is, you know, because it's public, there's not any sort of like recognition of any religion. Even like, for example, if you went into like the um, most a lot, a lot of the campers were Jewish. And then um and then if like, for example, if you went into the creative arts studio where you could do pottery, they would have like, they had an entire uh, like Jewish, like, I don't know, they had lots of stuff that was like geared toward, I can't explain, I can't explain exactly how to say it. It was like, there were Jewish symbols and Jewish, like Jewish things that were just that you could paint and that you could yeah. do for pottery. And that was because so many 
of the donors who donate to the camp are Jewish, um, and the camp is for the alumni of the University of Michigan. So that there is definitely um, a large population, and there always has been a large population I, I of think Jewish too, people. Where you Michigan. get a lot of your pride in the University of Michigan is a massive Jewish alumni community, right? Um, and the university was also one of the first universities in the United States to allow Jewish students. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, while I think this university has failed in terms of that metric of inclusivity across the board, right. especially over the last 50 plus years, mm-hmm. um, that's, I think, a really something that I knew about the University of Michigan before I even applied here. Right. Uh, is, you know, one, a lot of people in my area um, in north of Chicago uh, went to Michigan. It right. feels very much like a Michigan bubble there in right. terms of where my friend's parents have gone and went mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everybody has pictures of themselves and some yeah. as a baby in Michigan gear I, and all that. I grew up hating Michigan too. Really? Where where, where, where were you gonna go? I where were you? Up, I, I was a Northwestern fan, which uh, of means, course, okay, which means nothing, <laughs> um, and was in no competition with Michigan because Northwestern yeah, no. would always lose. But I grew up about <laughs> twenty minutes from Northwestern's campus, okay. so that was my local school. Okay. Um and. Everyone was a Michigan fan, and so I hated Michigan. Oh, okay, you had to be different. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and I was annoyed with the constant perceived arrogance of Michigan fans that I now probably play a massive role in. Mm, yeah, um, I mean, so. don't we all? Don't exactly. we all? You know, I was just thinking about how you were making how you, the comment that you just made about how the University of Michigan has really missed the bar um, in terms of in um, in terms of diversity. And so now we're sort of treading in an area that I personally feel like my heart is beating because I'm like, how do you, how do we have this conversation? Because like you said, yeah, there are lots of Jewish students at the university. Um, and I have, throughout my time at Michigan, I've made a lot of friends sort of across the board, Jewish and non-Jewish. And we've had these conversations and we've had these discussions across differences, even though they're, they can be quite uncomfortable, as I'm sure you know. And um, now, I mean, even over the summer, now I'm starting to get more into this this group of people that are trying to recoalesce with the Jewish community, especially the black community. The black community trying to recoalesce with the Jewish community because they're always historically had been a coalition between black yeah. the black uh, community and the Jewish community. And I think that if you are a historically based person, even if you are a historically based Jewish person, then then that explains a lot about why, like you said, I think I don't I don't want to quote this on the specific statistics. So please look it up. Don't quote me on this. But I think you said it was something like 80 percent of Jews vote Democrat all the time. Right. What was the number you think? I'm looking it up okay. right now. But um, one, two, yes, it is 71 percent of Jewish voters tend to choose. Um, That's Democrat. a lot of any identity. That's a lot of people. So in 20, in 2008, um, Obama received 78% of the Jewish vote. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton received 71% of the Jewish vote. That's a lot. That's a lot of any particular identity. And and it makes sense to me, um, considering, you know, the shared history of oppression and all that. But you know, what's also interesting to me is that it actually doesn't surprise me that 30% doesn't vote Democrat, considering how, um, quite frankly, how successful, you know, many 
Jewish people, Jewish communities have become within the past yeah. century. So I it's like not surprising to me. I think that's the challenge being Jewish in America um, because it's a, con it's a walking contradiction. Right. Um, you have a community that in this country um, has been highly successful mm -hmm. and has been a community that's worked to sustain each other mm -hmm. and very much has a focus on, you know, there's this idea, which I think is very valid and part of sort of the generational trauma of Jewish people, mm -hmm. um, that if we don't look out for ourselves and each other mm -hmm. as Jews, mm -hmm. no one else is going to. Mm. Um, okay. And what I think a lot of people don't recognize about American Jews specifically is my grandparents' generation, mm -hmm. um, not my grandparents specifically, but my grandparents' generation mm -hmm. was the generation that survived the Holocaust or that was very together. actually very recent people yeah. don't realize so, that and even though you know and i do acknowledge too i think there's something that needs to be said about you know the state of american jews in the united states as a really really highly successful community but a community that experiences significant interpersonal um anti-semitism still and so, right of course you know, I did not think growing up, but now I'm living in a world where I've seen synagogues shot up in right. this country. Um, but, you know, the Jewish community that I live in um, is very economically privileged mm -hmm. uh, and doesn't deal with the socioeconomic and systemic barriers in this country. Right. Um, and so it's a contradiction because what does it mean to be able to live in this country and be so highly successful and really benefit from what American society offers, mm -hmm. um, which we can also go back and forth about what that really is right. and who that's for. Um, and it wasn't always for American Jews. American Jews have historically been discriminated against right. uh, upon immigrating to this country in the various waves in which they did. Right. Um, but it's a difficult line to walk because there's a, uh, a lot of individuals think, you know, Jews are discriminated against or they're not. And what I like to say is it's really hard to hold two things that are true at once right. that contradict each other. It's not black and white. This is one of those cases right. where it's really complicated. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that I'm interested in doing that I don't think the Jewish community does enough and that I'd like to see us do more is anti-Semitism is a massive problem now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's going to take a lot of looking. Anti-Semitism where? Where, where, where? where do you think... You just like think it's general general anti-Semitism in the media, or is it general? Is it anti-Semitism on college campuses? Things like you know, like this country hasn't reconciled with the socialized thinking and the unconscious assumptions that have allowed the racist hierarchy of this country to continue. I don't think globally. So you you think that anti-Semitism is rampant in the U.S. I think that as from a, other white people, from other white, from other white people toward the Jewish community. In, in my mind, I would say that the greatest threat to American Jews is anti-Semitism that comes from white supremacists in the alt-right. Okay. Um, and that's where, and I think there's anti-Semitism that exists in this country across the board. And I dislike that people try to say left-wing anti-Semitism and right-wing anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, because again, as we talked about, when you categorize it like that, it makes things easier, mm -hmm. um, but I'm more interested in figuring out, you know, how anti-Semitism can be addressed by first addressing misunderstanding, right? Um, because again, you know, 
a lot of people would write off things that I used to believe mm-hmm. as harmful to certain communities. Okay. Um, and it's my opinion that the way through which you really change minds is not by shaming people, even though I think anti-Semitism in all forms of you know that type of hate should be called out for what it is, and right. the individuals should be held accountable. Right. Um, you know, my thought in engaging with that um, is we ought to find a way to make it productive. Right. Um, and show that you can hold someone accountable while also helping them grow. Right. Uh, and I think and I, that it's nuanced. It's yeah. nuanced. You 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 made a really good point earlier, and I was I wanted to just want just drive that in one more time that like it's not it's not it's not black and white it's not it's not a type of situation that's like you can you can know exactly like yes there is it's 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 there you're putting two different things together there there is there is a lot of aggression that's i mean uh aggression and anti-semitism happening at the same time against the community that has found a very successful means of getting by in this country but at the same time i also want to say something else because i think that you sort of hinted at it but i do want to say it that what i'll say is uh, earlier you made a point that your grandparents were was the generation that survived the holocaust people don't realize how recent the holocaust really was especially when they make all the photos black and white and they talk about it like in historical terms it was actually very very recent there are people alive today who've experienced it at the same time, there um, in the U.S., while that was happening over in Europe, the U.S. was going through the civil rights movement. So there are living ancestors of the civil rights movement, and a lot of people who got who left from Europe to come to the U.S., a lot of Jewish people coalesced with the black community during the civil rights movement because they found a shared history in that. But what was different about, what I'll say is what, what, what was different about those two experiences was something very, very simple and very, very stupid. And it was literally just race. I think that in a lot of ways, the reason why the black community was unable to find that same strength in community, whereas the Jewish community was able to do that, was simply because in a lot of ways, the Jewish community found privilege in their race by being able to come here and just be white, you know? And, and And that's the contradiction is there are lots of white people who would say Jews aren't our idea of white they're not Aryan people right right right, right. They're not white Christians mm-hmm. um, but the institution of whiteness in the United States um, has created the conditions where you know I without a keeper on mm-hmm. or without any Jewish gear on me can as a white person walk around in this country and have the protections of being white mm-hmm. um, if someone reads my last name they might be able to tell I'm Jewish right and, you know but the difference is is I don't feel as if the institutions of this country are aligned against me. Right. Um, I feel as if individuals Mm -hmm. and communities in terms of ideological communities Mm -hmm. are. um, Mm -hmm. And when my grandparents got here, you know, people don't realize that in 1939 to 1945, like World War II, true years of the Holocaust, um, the United States was turning away boats of Jews fleeing Europe and sending them back to Europe. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the SS St. Louis is an example of that. And it was a boat that got turned back and most of the passengers ended up um, perishing in the Holocaust. But that's a time um, when you have seen the institutions of this country aligned against Jews. Right. And so, you know, in my life, in my 21 years of life, I haven't experienced that. Right. But I saw the truth. But there are people who are alive today who did. Or or who are not alive today because they weren't even able, they weren't even given the opportunity to. Right. And, And... 
the family in the Jewish community and passing on sort of the story of our community through the family is something that's emphasized very significantly. Mm-hmm. Every year, it's done in the Jewish community, events where you will listen to Holocaust survivors right. and whatnot. And so there really does exist, you know, this present trauma that existed, you know, 80 years ago in the act, um, but has manifested itself differently since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's complicated. It is and, complicated. And that's something, and I'm glad you pointed that out because I think, you know, not only did the Holocaust happen so recently, but we are losing that generation. Right. Um, we are mm-hmm. losing the survivor generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really worries me mm-hmm. because I'm not sure the numbers, but recent, and this happens every so often where statistics come out that show, you know, a good percentage of Americans aren't aware of the Holocaust. A good percentage of Americans don't know what Auschwitz is. Yeah, right. And those things concern me because mm-hmm. um, we're losing the people who had the firsthand experience right. of what it was like to endure that. And you know, you know what's, you know what I find, not I don't want fascinating is too positive of a word, but it's not fascinating. It's. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but not in really in a positive way. I'll say that. I, I understand what you're trying okay, to say. Okay, yeah. I, 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 I,
things that maybe could be elaborated on better do directly challenge the United States. And so I would say that my Holocaust education was significantly better than my education on race in the United States. Yeah. And on slavery and on Jim Crow and mm-hmm. so on. And I, you well, you do make a point because we did not learn. We did, It wasn't until like I got into college that I learned how shitty of a job the U.S. did in terms of supporting uh, the Jewish people who are going through the Holocaust. And you make that point just a second ago that it doesn't directly, the Holocaust within itself doesn't directly challenge the the institutions of the United States, but telling the story about how the U.S., like you said, turned away boats and boats of yeah. Jewish survi- the, like Holocaust survivors yeah. does challenge the institution. That's why we don't learn about it. And the US <laughs> it's, it's horrible. The U.S. liberated the death camps in Germany and in Austria. But it took them a long the time to get to that defeated, point. Yeah, and the U.S. <laughs> defeated Nazi Germany, but for years and years... Um, yeah. An American first foreign policy dictated that we should not intervene. And Jewish, and a big part of, you know, it's interesting, there's a stereotype, we get quickly back into anti Semitism before I'm sure I move on to other things, is there's a constant stereotype um, that Jews in the United States drive America to war or drive America um, to be more involved in the world. The trope of globalization. Okay has a lot to do with Judaism in the minds, specific, particularly people who ascribe to a white supremacist ideology. Okay. Um, you've heard like globalism versus nationalism. Okay. Jews Can you explain global- that actually? Globalism um, versus nationalism? Globalism, the idea that, you know, it's a political, in my mind, it's like a political sen- political version of cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism is the idea that we, we have one human community, we don't have a national community that we weigh more okay. than a human community. It's the purest version of that. Okay. Um, and so I would say globalism is the idea um, that in this contemporary world, we should be linked with those all around us. Right. That okay. All of us. Okay. Nationalism is us versus them. Okay. It makes sense. before anything. Yep. And with that, I'm sure you know, channeled in a ton of stereotypes that help power a narrative that's usually rooted in racism right. or xenophobia and so on. Right. Okay. Um, but when Jewish people were pressuring um, the U.S. during World War II to intervene because of the Holocaust um, and American news that was beginning to report on what was going on in Germany, which wasn't front page news at the time, which right. is unbelievable, mm-hmm. um, there was an idea in this country and a pushback that Jewish people want America to get involved in this non-American war. Right. And that also was a big source of mistrust. And so that's another interesting example of where anti-Semitism has existed in this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, that's in, in a lot of ways, that tidbit of history is something that I, I didn't know. I've, I've known that I've always heard it be a situation where it's like, countries or people individuals like you said ideological communities will blame things on jewish communities but i never really sometimes you need to know like exactly what what are you what is being blamed and and even now i'm curious i mean we we can move on but i'm actually now curious like in what ways like was it that there were like jewish activists that were really urging the government or or who who was it that was like what what was that all about so, so rooted in sort of this age-old stereotype 
that Jews control. So there's an age-old stereotype, elders of Zion, and I'm probably not going to describe this as well as someone could. Um, but there's okay. this idea that the Jews control the world. Essentially. Oh, okay. Um, and where'd they get that idea from? It's rooted. I couldn't tell you. Okay. Um, right. But it's rooted, I think, a lot in throughout time the economic condition of Jews. Okay. Um, and so part of that stereotype is the idea that with that power that is perceived that Jews have, mm-hmm. even though oftentimes we've been, you know, we've had power used against us, mm-hmm. uh, they seek to be, quote, only in it for themselves is, I think, a good way of describing it mm-hmm. how it might be perceived. Right. And so people at that time bought into the idea that to have the interests of the Jewish community was mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. would not have the same then interests of the American national community. Mm. And there is this ideology within white supremacy, I'd say mainly, um, that Jewish individuals have it out only for the Jewish community. Okay. And I would say that's partially what it's rooted in. There's a wider, more complex history. Okay. Um, that unfortunately, you know, I'm not able to give as adequate. I mean, I, I'm sure. I'm sure that it. I mean, even if you have any familiarity with the Bible, like it might even go all the way back to. I'm sure it does in a lot of ways. Go all the way back to. Yeah. I mean, you know, the forty Jews years and of the Crusades. Too. Yeah. I mean, since, since biblical times. I mean the, the most no one is I'm not even going to stay here we don't even have to go into it there is no there are there are not many groups that at least mainstream that we know that I've learned about that have been more persecuted than the Jews I'm I mean I'm not in any way going to that, deny yeah, that I know you and I are either not people to weigh it because I think we recognize too that all forms of you know atrocities and oppression committed against communities right. is wrong right uh, but it's definitely and still feels present today um, there is this feeling that wherever Jews exist, forces are out to remove them. Mm. And that's something that, if you look at history, mm-hmm. you know, is a very valid narrative. Right. Yeah. So getting back into you and in, in your history, um, I, I just, I listen to the way that you speak about your identity as a Jewish person and, um, Honestly, like that kind of passion is something that, and I, like I said again, again for the millionth time, I'm not, I'm not comparing anything, but I'm saying that that identity, that 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 passion that you hear is, I, I I identify with it because that is how I speak about my experience as a black person in America. I feel like no matter where I go, there's this overarching feeling that I sometimes when I'm in places that are predominantly white, I feel like if someone is staring at me, they're staring at me because I'm black. Or if I'm being given bad service. You, prob- you probably experience that a thousand times plus more than I do. Right. Um, maybe. Maybe. I didn't mean to say right. But yeah, honestly, you know, probably, you know, because it's, yeah, it is it is a different issue. I wasn't trying to, but my point is I'm not trying to compare the two, but I was more so trying to get to the point that, like, I'm passionate about that because it's part of my identity. And I know that that identity of yours has played an enormous role in the way that you carry yourself, the way that you present yourself in public spaces. Um, and, um, but at the same time, like you've, you've managed to have 
hold that as an identity hold that as a passion of yours with as a as a passionate identity of yours um but even make that ideological shift over to like having a much more because you could very well to this day be very pro-israel and very um and and i'm not necessarily i'm not necessarily saying that that's always a bad thing but you could to this day be very you allow allow that identity to completely consume you in a way that makes you feel like well the world has always been against the jewish population therefore i need to be i need to be like you said almost a, a nationalist about how i feel about my jewish identity and i'd like to hear you explain that process for you not not to get too much into israel because you know that is such it's a long and hard thing to talk about right right and i'll I'll admit like you know like i think every person should i'm still undergoing a constant transformation and how i continue to think about that subject Mm -hmm. um and i think you know aside from you know what are very strong feelings about the need for, you know, the Jewish community to have the means to which to be advocates for themselves. Right. Um, I think the hard thing for me to do was to, you know, as I said, being an American Jew is a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, when I experienced Israel before, I had never experienced Israel as a contradiction. Right. Um, it was only a state for an oppressed people, and they were living out that dream finally. Right. Okay. Until I got to this university, I had not recognized that that great victory, which it's I'm use the term victory because that's sort of the discourse in my community, mm-hmm. um, and that great success, the creation of Israel, the you know modern nation state of Israel, mm-hmm. um, has created massive consequences for the Palestinian community, and the Palestinian diaspora and Palestinian refugees, um, and so it's another such a difficult situation where it's hard and not many people are holding two truths that contradict each other at right once. Mm-hmm. you know what does it mean to secure right to self-determination for one community at the expense of the other mm-hmm. when one when that community really needs it right. um and you know i'm not here to get into a whole debate one whether states and political entities that exist as states and i'm not here to debate you about it because i i really yeah (laughs) solutions to you know sort of ethnic and racial and religious based hatred Mm -hmm. you know i'm still having to debate for myself if the nation state of israel is the best means through which to secure jews from anti-semitism right you know i in the last few years have begun to understand even though i never truly understand at least start to shake my assumptions and open up my mind to the experience of Palestinians that began before 1948 Israel's establishment, right, and, and was massively transformed by the Nakba. And the what is the Nakba? Um, the Nakba. So it's interesting. Yom Ha'atzmaut is Israeli Independence Day, which okay, Pal- which the Palestinian community refers to as the Nakba, okay, um, which is the catastrophe. And so, okay, I think even from that, from those two holidays which I grew up celebrating Yom Ha'atzmaut, and still, you know, within my community, it's a really important day, for an entire other community, represents a catastrophe. Right. And the fact that until I got to the University of Michigan, I erased that possibility completely in my head, um, was something that was really difficult to overcome. Did you erase it? Did you erase it as a possibility, or did you just not even... It wasn't in my discourse, and when it was brought up, the idea of occupation, it was denied by my mind. Okay. I denied that there was an occupation. 
Right. I denied that Israel had, you know, been involved in expelling Palestinians from a land on which they were living. Okay. And there's a complicated history that I am working through authors like Edward Said and Rashid Khalidi, two guys. Edward Said's famous um, Palestinian political activist, and Rashid Khalidi comes from a family of Palestinian historians and mm-hmm. writes a lot about Palestinian history. Um, through reading the both of them um, in my early to present college years, mm-hmm. helped shake a lot of the assumptions I approached this issue with. Um, and so that to me is a very complicated space to operate in with my community. Mm-hmm. Um, because like people in my community, you know, my reaction to the hatred and to the violence that Jews have experienced was, you know, we ought to take control of mm-hmm. our future mm-hmm. and our security. Right. Uh, and I don't even like that word security anymore because you and I both understand how that term has been used to justify yes. and create horrible things. Right. Um, in a bunch of different contexts. Right. Um, but in this specific one, um, it's hard to look and say, we might need this as a community, but it's unacceptable when potentially the acquisition of that. And I believe that, you know, I don't really have an opinion yet on whether, you know, that security is actually achieved or not through Israel. Right. I think that's a way more complicated conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm challenging to myself to think is, what does it mean to take something that's comfortable for me when me taking that comes at the expense of someone else. Okay. And that was, I think, a root of the, a lot of my assumptions I came into school with, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I, like, if you don't mind me sort of moving to that. No, please, please, please go. Um, yeah. But, like, just this idea, you know, thinking of assumptions. Like, the assumption that in this country, you know, I grew up with the belief that if you work hard, you can transcend all class barriers. Okay. Um, that an economy without government present um was the best means through which to run a society because it meant everyone could take what's theirs and what they are. Right. It's a very um, utopianistic you know, I, ideal. I very much, <laughs> you know, were thrown the assumptions of what we're led to believe in American society, and I ate them up. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, really shocking when I came here. Mm-hmm. And I started to listen instead of talk. Okay. And that, to me, was the big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I came into college thinking I knew everything. I, I, we all I did. Know I'm in a way better position because I realize I know nothing. Right. And that to me is a really important place to be. Right. So what do you? That's great, and I think that you. That's once that that is that narrative is is one that I've not just heard from you, but I've had a lot of white friends and people from different backgrounds, honestly, not even just white, who came into the University of Michigan thinking that they knew everything. Yeah. And finally, like, having these conversations and sitting in classrooms and listening to talks and going to whatever and realizing, wow, like, I grew up in a bubble. And although, you know, there is some validity to the, bu- the, to the, to the ideology and to the discourse that's happening inside of the bubble I grew up in, it's not to be totally, totally pushed away. There is a whole other world out here that I never took into consideration and finally someone's forcing my ears to be open. But there's still a really valid point there that something that we as a society and especially we as I say, especially we as intellectuals do is we we really do not like to listen to the perspectives of people who who have who with with ideas that we disagree with and i'm not saying that necessarily like 
you need to sit down and every black person needs to sit down at the University of Michigan and, and talk to the college Republicans or whatever. And we need to, we need to do that and we need to. But we are very quick to just completely sign off whatever is being said, not necessarily saying that we need to need to listen to agree. But I think that there is something to be said about listening to understand for context, at the very least, why someone is thinking the way they think you could come into the you or someone could come into the University of Michigan having grown up in a very pro-Israel and but you grew up in a very yeah. Jewish I, community I, how else would you be thinking like I'm, I'm I even loved, like I stopped a few years ago using even the terms pro-Israel and pro-Palestine because being pro one implies being anti the other right and okay I don't even know I don't like I'll, I'll say this very frankly I don't know what I'm pro right now what I'm okay. pro right now is that those who live in that space of land regardless of their identity can feel as if they're liberated from whatever oppresses them. Mm -hmm. And that's too complicated and interwoven because in the minds of many, you know, the liberation of the Jews in who live in Israel, Israelis, you know, is only possible with the current structure in place that oppresses the Palestinians. Right. You know, that that I would say is the predominant belief in right wing Israeli political discourse mm -hmm. that the current prime minister makes policy off of Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. um, it's this idea that the security of the community there rests upon the structure in place now right. that has been in place since 1948, mm -hmm. which is to restrict the freedom, you know, of Palestinians. And I, and I appreciate you making that distinction. I do yeah. want to say I did not, I was not trying to insinuate that you were pro one or the other, but more so just that like, it's, it's, it's easy to meet someone who is pro one or the other and automatically sign them off because you have your idea of what that means to be that and to generalize, like we talked about in the beginning of the conversation, to generalize that, that person. But if it, if, even if you disagree with what it is that they're saying, there is a necessity to receive context. And I know and I always I always get pushed back when I say this, but I even think about when it comes to I'm going to get I, I, this is not great, but when I when I think about for example, very rural white communities that are voting for Trump. I as an intellectual as a as a person who cares a lot about understanding context. I'm not saying that in any way it's justified. Their white supremacy is not justified. We live in an age of technology. There's no reason why you should be this ignorant. But there are people, there, there, there are enormous digital gaps in this country where people don't have access to, to information. They didn't go to college. No one in their family went to college. And they are, honestly, the best foot soldiers for someone who's really good at manipulation. And if you understand that kind of context, then you can understand why people think the way they think and then you can work from that perspective rather than like you said in the beginning pushing someone away because they think differently from you also like and an important one, i think the absolutely great point to me i think too it comes down to that that's been used as a tool you know when you had like looking at reconstruction for mm -hmm. example when you had finally a populist movement that united newly freed black workers mm -hmm. and poor white workers who were both being exploited in the South. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, the recently freed slaves were way more exploited than poor whites. 
and the institution of slavery very much existed upon the fact that poor whites liked the system because mm -hmm. at least it gave them superiority oh, in right. society in which they were not owners of capital. Um, and what I think you've seen a lot of time is in to distract from the real issue, to distract from a government that would rather invest in war than in a social safety net, mm -hmm. to distract from an economy that's built for the accumulation of wealth, right. not the transcendent of class boundaries, the right. transcendence of class boundaries. Um, you constantly have messaging that pits communities against each other to distract from the issue. And I think when you talk about communities that are susceptible to this white supremacist ideology, right. it's working families and working communities who instead of being angry with the corporations that continue um, to accumulate wealth and decrease income and a country mm -hmm. that does not want to invest in well-being um, and does not want to invest in making sure everyone has what they need. Mm -hmm. um, that is easy to blame when the government and when the Trump administration manufactures a position that says immigrants are the ones trying to take your jobs not corporate downsizing and cost cutting is the real reason jobs are shrinking right that's i think a great example of how that's been used in mm -hmm. so i think you said that well when you look at people it's important to not just acknowledge that what they're thinking is wrong but if we want to be productive and it's hard and it's emotional labor for individuals to go about doing this um but we have to try to think why yeah and you know and that's hard. That is really, really, hard. people do and not know how to and do that. Not, and it's not for everyone because I'm it's not, not saying, you know, individuals who are oppressed shouldn't sit and try to work through understanding, you know, necessarily why they're someone. They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to. Right. Um, and that's why I'm so insistent upon doing it um, with a lot of people is because I feel very lucky that I've been able to escape a lot of these assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um and that I've been able to gain some of the clarity um, that I've gained. Mm -hmm. But the important thing for me is now that I have that clarity, being able to put myself in the conversation where I am comfortable trying to figure out the why and the how for somebody mm -hmm. because that was done for me and I saw how beneficial it was. Right. And so... You know, when someone says something that we disagree with or when someone buys into an ideology that we think is wrong or racist or harmful, right. they need to be held accountable for that, as I mm -hmm. said. But we should try to figure out why they think that and address that, too. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's not the responsibility of the oppressed to do that footwork. Um, it's really not. And that's done too much. And it's unappreciated and undervalued. Yeah. And I right. And I honestly don't want to. I don't always. Yeah. I don't want to sit down. Like, I've, I, when yeah. we've had those moments on campus when there were white supremacists coming who were waving their flags and doing their thing for Trump, you know, dancing their dance for Trump. I didn't want to pull them aside and say, hey, can we have a honest discussion about your background so I can get a better idea and, and try to yeah. explain my side? Yeah. Like, that's not how it goes. But when you yeah. do have those moments where you can understand people and you do, you can find the time to do a little bit of the digging that it will take, I think that it definitely at least helps you understand a little bit better the perspectives of yeah, and, and it's not, like it was hard too to sit freshman year. Like I, I explained this to my parents. It was hard to be like, wow, everything I think about the world 
is wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't love to use the word right versus wrong in terms of, like, right. policy conversations, but I think from an ideological standpoint and from a point of whether or not you're able to resist some of the socialized thinking that's so toxic in this country, mm-hmm. um, that it was hard to sit in classes and think, you know, wow, this is difficult. But what's, mm-hmm. what frustrates me and what I still feel guilty for, you know, is one, I feel like I lost time because I was politically involved on, on what I feel is the wrong side of things in high school. Um, and two, um, is this idea that, like, that was the only way, not the only way, but that was how I needed to be, quote, activated okay. or was able to sort of shake those assumptions and have this new perspective on things was if it wasn't for me hearing the stories of people um, who weren't white in my classes, if it wasn't for being in classes that illustrated the harmful practices, you know, I point two classes freshman year, which is history of the American empire okay. and African-American literature mm-hmm. were two classes for me that really started the domino effect of changing the way I thought about things. Okay. And it's frustrating for me to think that there's not many paths through which people can do that now. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean? What do you mean there that, aren't many paths? That's the what? What do you What do you mean on? there aren't What do you mean there aren't many paths for people to do that now? It's, just, it, it's our basic inclination, I feel, as humans, to resist feeling like we're wrong and we don't know anything. Right. And so, and I don't think we currently live in a. I don't think our discourse currently allows for much error. Okay. And because I think we're pressed between this urgency to hold people accountable who need to be held accountable. Right. Like, I still feel like I need to be held accountable as a random kid in this country for thinking things when I was younger that I think are super wrong now. Mm-hmm. Um, but how we balance, as I keep saying, holding people accountable but making progress towards a new understanding. Um, and... You know, my education here was a huge part of that, but this is obviously not that accessible. Right. And how do we make it more accessible or how do at least two, we encourage, you know, a balance of not making individuals have to go through the emotional labor of working through a conversation with someone who's diametrically opposed to their existence mm-hmm. or their freedom or their liberation, mm-hmm. um, but also addressing maybe why people might start off that conversation on the wrong foot Mm -hmm. before writing them off completely. You said a second ago that you feel like you've lost time um, because you spent a lot of time in high school with ideals that you, uh, you are opposed to today you know that they're not they're not ones that you you withhold today and I just wanted to speak to that just for a second because maybe maybe yeah you know you spend some time in high school which is honestly not a very long long period of time and I know that you know hopefully there will be younger people the ideas that we're getting this message not only to our generation and to older generations but to people who are younger than us high school students who might be listening to this thinking I have a lot of work to do and I have, you know, I I have a lot of forward moving to do. This is kind of that time to do it. And I I worry, Ben, about you saying that you 
you know, you missed out on time because we all did that in our own in our own special ways. Like maybe, yeah, you're right. I grew up in a very Afrocentric, very black community that was um, even without necessarily constantly being in a mode of education was education just by being if you get what I'm saying like we were we were educating just by living in a community this way and in the same way for you um because you grew up in a Jewish in a very homogenous Jewish community but coming to the University of Michigan was an enormous culture shock for me and I think in a lot of ways um especially now that I know the value of having powerful dialogue across difference um I was not willing to have conversation with people who in any way identified uh, in conservatively. I didn't have I, I was almost not even willing to have a conversation about race unless you were an oppressed person. And I think that leaving people out of that conversation actually ends up being counterproductive in the long run so my point being is that I grew up in high school thinking I knew everything about what I needed to know about my own race and my actually my first African-American studies class was taught by two white people and it was actually the the um it was Africa and the diaspora and I'm thinking what are these two white what is this white man going to teach me about my history and the diaspora and I'm not saying that maybe there was a black professor somewhere that could teach me about it just as well but the point being that like you can't leave people out of that shared history because there is a shared history and that was something I learned through college um and it, and it ended up working in my benefit as a person as a person who cares a lot about um having these kinds of conversations because there was really a period of time where and not and in my opinion not a period of lost time just a period of time of my childhood where I thought I knew what I needed to know about myself as a black person because I lived through it and that's not necessarily true. So I just want to go back and say that you saying that you lost no, time. No, you had a moment. We had a moment. Huh? I said, we're always learning. We are. We're always learning. But I don't want you. I, I just, I, just a friend, a friend moment. I just don't want you to feel like, oh, I lost this time. Yeah. Because <laughs> you didn't lose the time. Like you, you were right where you were meant to be at that time. <laughs> I would just want to add a really quick disclaimer about something that I just said because I went back and listened to it and I was like, uh-uh, I need to clarify exactly what I was trying to say, okay? <laughs> when I said that Ben was right where he needed to be, I meant that. I will say that I meant that because I believe in restorative justice and I believe that if you make a mistake, as long as you recognize that the mistakes that you were making the things that you were saying, the behavior that you were exuding is a basis for growth, then yes, I do believe that you are meant to be where you were. However, however, I would like to add the very, very important caveat. I'm not sure if it's a caveat or if it's just the very important fact that the damage that you cause as a result of your Whatever it be, whether it be misogyny, racism, xenophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, whatever it be, the damage that you cause to a community, to an individual, because of your ignorance, because of whatever it is to add context, because of the things that your parents taught you, because of the things that your church taught you, whatever, is not negated. That, that, that does not go away. It is not just because you're in a place where you are ready to grow. That does not mean that you didn't do what you did. But the first step 
is recognizing that what you did or said or thought was wrong and that it was wrong to at that group of people or to an individual and moving forward because I am a firm believer in restorative justice and that's why I said that not because I think that it's okay for high schoolers who believe things that are negative I think it's okay just because they're high schoolers because that's just not true so wanted to just clear that up real quick all right let's carry on in all honesty too I think it in conversations with people it's something that I've actually found very helpful because I can say, you know, I used to think like that too. Mm-hmm. Or you knew me at a time when I agreed with you on this point and now here I am trying to explain to you why I see things differently. Right. And why I think you could too. Right. And that's something that I found, you know, is a resource that I need to use. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you've sat in that way of thinking, you really understand mm-hmm. what drives it and how it works. Right. When I say that way, I'm thinking like... Um, you know, I was not, I don't know how to describe my political beliefs adequately when I was a kid, because I wasn't like a tried and true Republican. I wasn't a conservative <laughs> in all honesty. I just didn't really understand anything. And that's what I was drawn to. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's, I think, my best way of describing it. Because okay. I wasn't as informed enough at that time to mm-hmm. actually feel like I had an ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a system of beliefs. Right. Um, I thought politics was interesting. And I picked up on what was accessible. Right. Um, and I think that's how I would assess it. Okay. Um, yeah, and I think that we all had those. I mean, I, I just think about who I was when I was in high school. And it definitely didn't help that, like, when I was a junior in high school, I went to Senegal to go build a school. And that's an experience that a lot of my classmates didn't get to have. So most most people at my school don't get to have. So, like, I got to go to Africa. And so I came back and I was like oh, I just have this whole other perspective of the outside world outside of the U.S. Like, I, I've seen people in this in this type of poverty that you all just can't even understand. I remember when I was in high school, we were doing a... I was actually running this thing. I don't know, have you, have you ever heard of Souls for Souls? Uh-huh. Yeah, so I was doing a Souls for Souls uh, um, drive at my school. Where, Souls for Souls is an organization that um, they collect old shoes, new and gently worn shoes that uh, so people can donate their shoes and we were doing one at my at my high school where people were bringing in their shoes and it was great and I had done it you know this is my second year doing it and it was really wonderful we were collecting hundreds and hundreds of shoes the part of the souls for souls thing you have to separate them by age group and gender um men and women um and I we, we got to the point of the day when I had just I had just got back from Senegal and I'd spent this time in this village no electricity no running water no nothing and we had to separate the shoes and there were people in my class who didn't want to touch the shoes without gloves and I was thinking to myself I remember thinking like you all are so privileged and so just I I had like I said I had just got back from Senegal so I was very radical about feeling like very anti-American privilege. Like, I, my eyes had just been open for the first time. And so I took that kind of, I took it that the passion ended up being very positive for me in a lot of ways. It, it ended up driving me through college and gave me something of a oomph. But even in that sense, I was, it's kind of ironic because I was assuming, by by assuming that I knew more than my classmates, I was sort of pushing them away and making them, close-minded to the ideas that I had just learned rather than like pulling them in and wanting helping them understand what it was that I had just learned um and so that ended up being very counterproductive because they thought that I was just 
I had come back and I was radical and I was crazy and I was being mean when really I was just thinking like you don't understand people are living in poverty like you've never seen it because you're American but I just saw it and I want you to know that like touching these shoes is not is not going to hurt you there are people who are literally like living like sleeping in the in the dirt and you would never even be able to fathom that so just anyway there are things you have to learn about communication for me it was about communication for you it was about you know shaping your ideologies it's it's just it's it's a different yeah it's a different battle for different people and the best thing that i learned is to lean into that and not to resist that as uncomfortable as it may be right yeah yeah Yeah. and that i mean that was just something i learned over time and that's something that comes with maturity um yeah and so before we before we end, because I can't believe it's already been an hour that we've been on the phone. Um, I know, and I'm, I told you it was gonna be a thirty minutes, but honestly, it no, normally doesn't end up being that way. Yeah, and you honestly have done a really good, a really great job of sort of like not going on tangents. I know how to go on a tangent, so I appreciate you. Um, my last thought was, uh, you slipped it in in the beginning, really quick, that you were the student body president, um, and I mentioned that in your intro. And so because you held a position of leadership at the University of Michigan, um, honestly, like a very high position of student leadership at the University of Michigan, if not considered possibly, I wouldn't want to say the highest because there are lots of student positions at the university that might not be CSG that also have a lot of pull in terms of conversation. I I would say that every student organization leader too has the role in pushing the university to do something. Right, right. I am just one lever. Right. You have that, you have that, you have different doors. Yeah. You know, that position I was in happens to have, I would say, like, the most institutional weight. Right. But doesn't have the most, in my mind, student activist power. Oh, absolutely. I think it depends. Right. And you know firsthand it does not have the most student activist power. That that is actually a really good point. It doesn't have the most student activist power. I think that you know, within my role in the BSU, I could actively speak out against the university and not feel any, and not feel like the university is going that, to like that, say anything to me that, about it. That was a very hard part of the job for me. And we're, and I lost definitely the will to like- Fight it. People not angry with me pretty quickly because mm-hmm. I realized that's how I will know if I'm doing this well or not. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are angry with you or not. Administrators are content with the way through which I'm doing things or if not. And, mm-hmm. You know, I try to meet everyone where they're at. Right. And work with everyone. And, right. You know, I'd say I, had a re- I made really, really good relationships and people were really super nice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you definitely feel held back in ways right. where I wish, I, you know, you could want to express yourself differently. Right. Um, but, you know, I think... I had to package things differently. Right. Um, and as a leader, and honestly, as a leader, you have to, that's a, a lesson that pretty much all of us yeah. as, leader, as leaders have had to learn is that you are not going to be, like, sometimes, strangely enough, it, sometimes when people are angry with you, when administration is angry with you, it might be because you did the right thing. <laughs> because you were standing up for the students in a way that they would have preferred that you didn't because they don't want to cause any issues. They don't want any issues happening. Um, so it's, 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 that's a balance as well. Um, I was actually going to get into a separate question, um, before we go. Uh, so yeah, so you held this position of student leadership. Um, that was, like we said, it has some, some level of institutional power. And so you, with, through that, through that, through that position, you 
learned how to have like these types of conversations with other student leaders and with students about like about how to facilitate these kinds of dialogues or just like how to not even just like how to do it but you've probably had to have these kinds of conversations with other student leaders if not at members of administration as well so I'm curious from your perspective as a person who withholds the identities that you've held and someone who's had the leadership experience that you've leadership experiences that you have had what do you say to how we bring more student leaders into this or how do we bring more students into conversations like this to understand like the necessity for um understanding across difference and 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 even even in a sense how do you bring in people who feel like because they grew up in a community that was adamantly against some other community how do you bring those people into the conversation too so i'd say one in terms of just my perspective in the university has changed a lot since i've left my position Mm -hmm. also watching how the university has handled this summer and this fall to me has been really frustrating and upsetting to see Mm -hmm. um and so separate from your question quickly like i completely understand why student leaders and those who are involved in activism on campus might look at what's gone on and say i feel like i don't have the bandwidth or the emotional capacity to to take this on right now because it feels as if the powers are aligned against me and in my mind that's where it looks like the university's position this itself specifically on this issue reopening now is Mm -hmm. you know valuing certain things like you know, the material condition of the university over the safety and well-being of everyone here. Mm-hmm. And what's frustrated me most about the leadership of the current president and how the administration's running itself is there seems to be more of an emphasis on messaging and defending bad policy instead of meaningfully addressing concerns of people mm-hmm. who either one might not understand or are very validly concerned, which in this case, I think... Um, was the case where you had students and faculty and graduate students all validly concerned about a poor reopening plan. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say more concretely on your question um, is that the way, I would say there's like a way to get people um, to be in more conversation with each other. And I don't know, you know, how, where I sit on the idea of, you know, fostering that environment because I think it's important Mm -hmm. um I want to think about it and I think the best way to think about it is to separate it from policy Mm -hmm. separate it from issues it's Mm -hmm. important to have conversations about issues that are rooted in facts and in policy right um but my biggest thing is the first way through which you really make that conversation productive Mm -hmm is understanding the person and understanding how they arrive at the conclusions that they make. Right. Because we are products of our environment and we are products of our family and we right. are products of our community and we are products of the identities we hold. Okay. And I don't feel like the idea of engaging with someone purely on the substance of an issue is the best way to do that without first trying to meet them where they're at. Right. Or see where they come from right uh, in turn and so that would be i guess like my biggest piece of advice is i wouldn't say like there's something specific that people can do but mm-hmm. i think leading with that first when you've worked up the want to engage with someone like that because it's not for everyone and no it's not like in my mind 
you know, I feel comfortable doing that so often mm-hmm. because I feel like I'm not going through the emotional labor of defending my standing in the society. Right. In conversation. Right. And you hit on that. something important. Some it, honestly, this is a thing. This is a like you were saying earlier. You have this conversation with your parents. You have this conversation with your roommates. You have this conversation with yeah. other white people, other Jewish people, other whatever. That's where the conversations gotta have got to happen. And then I, I hate to. I'm so sorry to cut you off, but I was just thinking before I lost this thought that I have this. I've been having this conversation a lot lately about how do you have conversations about identity, for example, without people who withhold that identity in the room. And then you get to almost something of like an interesting paradox because it's like you don't want the people, you want them to be there, to be present, but why though? Like you, do you want them to be advocates like for their identity? They shouldn't have like, to be. Like being very frank, like throughout this summer with all that's going on in, in this country, right. a majority of the conversations I've had about it have been in all white rooms with all white people mm-hmm. from suburbs. Yeah, and the thing about it is, do we as a, we do people, like, for example, I'll say about my identity, but this could be about the LGBT community, this could be about any any disenfranchised identity in the, in this country, in the world. Do, do we, does that mean that we have to sort of relinquish some level of control that we have about how that narrative is being told by allowing the allies of that, com- of our communities, of our respective communities to tell the story to their communities in a way that is digestible for their community because sometimes I mean, me as a black woman is not a di- it's not digestible for me to be ranting to enough to a white to yeah, a, you're a straight I white mean, man the, my the, story the way i do it and not saying like you know how i do this is the best way or the right way mm-hmm. um, because i'm very cognizant of in these conversations mm-hmm. people are looking at me and seeing a 21 year old white kid from a part of Chicago that was explicitly designed so it could be a white-only wealthy community north of the city, mm-hmm. separate from all the problems that go on in Chicago that are the product of redlining and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. they see that in a conversation. Right. And so how in that conversation am I going to do justice what I need to do? Right. And I think it's a balance of one explaining, you know, I'm someone who holds your identities in this conversation um, as a white person in this country. Um, from this kind of area where I haven't been exposed to much beyond who we are. Right. Um, and I think like this, and this is how I got here, and this is what I want you to hear, mm-hmm. but also go read this or go watch this. Or, you know, I like to recommend reading because I think that's where the best mm-hmm. learning is done. Right. Even though interpersonal conversation is like the most important tool we have. Right. Um, where I feel like I can't deliver anymore. And when I think someone really needs to listen to a voice that has, you know, experience like, I would say someone like James Baldwin, for example, yeah, for sure. articulates the black experience of the United States really powerfully mm-hmm. um, in a way that really shocks the assumptions of people who come from areas like I do. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite lines from him is, you can tell how a country feels about people by the state of their institutions. Yep. And I remember that line <laughs> enough for me helped me understand systemic racism Mm -hmm. when I came into college resistant to it as an idea. Mm. And I try in all my conversations to like really one, know the person I'm talking to because you know, I'm in a different situation where the people I'm around all the time um, are at different levels of where they are in their thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I have to try 
as hard as it is, but I feel like I need to, mm -hmm. and I have the emotional capacity to, because this isn't life and death for me, even though, you know, I, I want to engage with it with a passion like it is, right. um, that I have to do my best in those conversations. So I think it's, you know, I don't know where that balance is, but you make a great point that should control be relinquished? I think no. And I don't think control is relinquished mm -hmm. because I wouldn't understand how to have the conversations without if I didn't listen first. Right. So absolutely. And absolutely. once I think someone would have the conversation with me, then they go listen to people who've always gone through the emotional labor to get their thoughts out there, like James Baldwin, like Angela Davis. Right, 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 right. And so on. Right, um, of course. I guess so I guess when I say relinquishing control more so is it we it's it's like a Less so relinquishing control and and more so establishing real trust for that story to be told in spaces yeah. where we're not present. Um, and we just, I guess that's just the reality. We're just going to have to accept that that is going to be a part of it is we're not always going to be there and we have to, we have to just establish some level of trust. But even just witnessing how the things went down this summer and how... Although a lot of it is performative, I know that we can have that conversation all day about how performative things are. Um, still, though, even if it is performative, even if you are someone who is not necessarily the most informed, but your mom, for example, or your grandma or your uncle or whoever is in your house is saying they're against Black Lives Matter or they're against this or they're against that, but you know you posted that black square and you're going to explain you for whatever reason you're feeling very passionate about it. Even if you posted it for some performative reason, but you're bringing that discussion to someone who is not ever being challenged on their thoughts, I think that there is power in that. And people will always fight me on it. They're like, well, it doesn't matter if you're being performative. And I disagree. I think that there is power in you saying things to people, whether, whether, whether or not your intentions are, whether or not you're the most informed, whether or not you've done all the James Baldwin reading and all that, you, for whatever reason, identify with the struggle and you want to inform other people. That's all I'm asking for is for you to push the yeah. word out. And I think there's, and I definitely feel it. I think there is a sort of responsibility when you know that like you've broken out of what the way our society is oriented to help people think in certain ways. When you've been able mm -hmm. to resist that from a certain perspective, like I feel as if I have in certain ways, mm -hmm. channeling that in a productive way. Right. Um, because as I said, like I'm sitting in the unique position where I'm, I care a lot and I'm very invested in this. Right. But when I'm in these conversations, the subject of the debate isn't my ability to leave freely in the United States. Right. And so I'm coming at it with a lot more comfortability because I'm not here selling whether I should be able to live as freely as they do. Right. Um, and I can't imagine what it's like to have to sit in a conversa conversation and repeatedly argue for your humanity. Right. Um, it's, and, it, yeah, it's exhausting. Um, yeah. I think that you also made a really good point before we go. Um, you made a really good point about leveling the playing, the playing field um, and seeing people for where they come from. And I think that probably the most important thing that you can we can do as people who care a lot about our identities for you as uh, you know, as a Jewish person who wants to help people understand the reality of, you know, the Jewish experience in the U.S. or the Jewish experience abroad, or for me as a black woman, or for us as a coalition of identities together, is to understand ultimately 
that in order to have a productive conversation, we have to level the playing field down to humanity. And that, I think, is the best way. It's not always the easiest way, but it's the best way to bring people in when you realize that this is not, our shared struggle is ultimately not really about my race. It's not really about your, your religion. It's not really about anything like that. It's about human beings doing what human beings do. And if we can realize that, if we can see that from that perspective, from almost a philosophical perspective of human experience, then we can start to really dig into who we are as people and, like I said, level level those playing fields and have real conversation. But as long as people see, as long as I see myself as a black woman and I'm completely different from you as a as as a Jewish person or as a Jewish white man or however it is, you know, we want to identify ourselves as me as a woman, you as a man. We we can never ha- really level our playing fields and have conversations about what people as human uh, beings deserve um, from each other and from ourselves. So, yeah, I think this was a really incredible conversation. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm I'm like blown away. Like this was really really great. I really appreciate having you today. Thank you for making the time um, and have a great rest of your Congratulations, it looks like you've made it to the very end of the episode. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to let me know at Sit Down with Sid on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're interested in connecting later with any of the guests that I have on my show on the Sit Down, check out our Instagram for more information. And if you're feeling it, give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. I want to know how y'all are feeling. All right, stay woke, stay aware. This is Sid signing out.